This evening, this evening's reading is from Matthew 16, verse 13 to 20, which can be found on page 983 of the Church Bibles. That's Matthew 16, verse 13 to 20, on page 983 of the Blue Church Bibles. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. It's lovely to see you here tonight as we're looking over this period of time at what the Bible teaches about gospel growth and what specifically that would mean for us, for you and I and us as a fellowship as we gather together. I'm going to really just want to look at five words tonight. I'm going to be going all over the Bible to do it. But we're just going to be looking at five words tonight. You may want to open your Bible or whatever you're reading that on to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Five simple words spoken by our Lord Jesus. I will build my church. I will build my church. Can you say that with me? I will build my church. As we come and think about that tonight, let me tell you a story that happened to me about 24 years ago. I was in a new fellowship. I'd been there about two or three years. And I had two men that asked to speak to me. They were from a little fellowship, a little village about 12 miles away, rural part of Bedfordshire. And they sat down with us and they turned to me and said, look, We're part of the FIC. You're part of the FIC. It's all about helping one another. Will you come over and help us build our church? Now, that's really exciting to be asked, but I have to admit, it wasn't really the kind of hand you wanted to be dealt in a card game. There were nine people in the church, two of them under 70. No children. It had once had its heyday many, many decades earlier, but now it was just sort of dwindling. And and here were these nine that diligently wanted to please God. Now, I have to confess, there's a lot of situations where I would say to somebody in such a situation, probably the best thing is to walk away at such a time. But we felt that God was in this. And we thought, okay, we'll come alongside you. And we, took, we gave them some ideas. There were a lot of struggles, a lot of fights. There were lots of things that went on over the years. Back and forth with these nine people. Two of them actually left, and they were the ones that were under 70. And you know, today, there's regularly a congregation there in Providence Baptist Church. You can look it up, our Providence Bible, our Baptist Church on the Internet. There are regularly dates now 120 people to meet every Sunday. 
Over 80, all are conversions from that area. And God in his mercy, and with more than a few of the hairs that I'm now going bald from, (laughs) that were pulled out, built his church. Now, we're looking tonight at what the Bible says about that, and we're looking particularly there in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and Jesus says here, I think prophetically, Jesus said, I will build my church. And I think there's at least three things that come out of that that I want to bring you tonight. First of all is what I might call the ultimacy of God. Secondly, the focus of Jesus, and finally, the security of the church. And if you have your Bible, open that with me. And I want to think about that. First of all, thinking about the ultimacy of God. Now, what do I mean by ultimacy? What I mean is simply this. The unstoppable exercise of God's divine authority to bring about what he has determined. I take it that these words are on the same level as Genesis chapter chapter 1, verse 3. When God says, let there be light, and there was light. That the exercise of authority is in such a way determinative of the end that nothing can stop it. And here the Lord Jesus, as he approaches the cross of Calvary, knowing that he will go to the cross of Calvary, there be crucified, there be buried, and after that he will defeat death and Satan and sin and will rise victoriously as he looks forward to that road. He declares, I will build my church. A declaration of what God will do through history with all its ups and downs, with the rise and falls of nations, with leaders who are good and leaders who rant and leaders who are awful, with people who actually are obedient, people who are disobedient, good people, bad people from all nations, I will build my church. Now, actually, I want to suggest that this is nothing new. Jesus did not introduce here a new thought. In many ways, I would argue that the sweep of the Bible is actually that that has always been God's purpose from the very beginning. Just think about the the, the bookends of the Bible. You start Genesis 2 with a beautiful garden that's ruined by sin, Genesis 3. And you end the Bible with a beautiful garden city in Revelation chapter 22. Those are the bookends of the Bible. And if you ask, you know, why doesn't Genesis chapter 22, why does it end with a, a garden city? One reason. Cities are for people. And God is building his people. Now, let me be very clear here, just so we don't get confused, what I, the word church here means when Jesus says, I will build my church. He doesn't mean a building. He doesn't mean an organization. But, but actually, the, the word is ecclesia. That means a people who are called out. It's the same word that's used, uh, the Greek word that was used in the translation of the Old Testament and the Septuagint for the word assembly in the Old Testament. So it's an assembling of people that God assembles to himself for his own pleasure. 
And Jesus is saying here, I will build this assembly of people through history for my own delight and pleasure. And that's really the story of the Bible. You know, we've had the lovely musicians up there. And uh, I, I, I love it when you, you, you pick out the melody line and you can follow the song from the melody line. The melody line of the Bible is God is building an assembly of people for his very own self. He begins with Adam and Eve. God's people in the place of God's choosing under the rule and the blessing of God. That's what you have there in the garden in chapter 2. Sin ruins that, but God's plan is not ruined. Then he calls a man, an absolute idolater and sinner, sinner, Abraham, out of his world. He calls him to himself, and he said to Abraham, out of you and your descendants, I will create a people. Follow down in history to another descendant of Abraham, to Moses. And Moses is used to bring the Hebrews out of Egypt. And he brings them through the desert. He brings them to the mountain where they can be with God. Moses' descendants would then go down to, or Abraham's descendants would go down to David. David would be the great king. God would say to you, I will build you a house that will never fail. And one of your descendants will rule forever. David's greater son would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah, God in the flesh, the flesh, the Lord came down and became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and he would gather his people through his life, death, resurrection, and glorification. And the story of the Bible is simply this. God will build his people. I mean, think about it, the, the, the amazing reality today. I, I know there's a lot of challenges and a lot of problems, we might say, with the, the sort of the work of Christianity across the world. But just stop a minute and think about this. 120 people gathered in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, and now today over a third of the people in the world would confess Jesus to some degree being their allegiance. Isn't that amazing? How? Because God will build his church. And nothing can stop that. And I think ultimately, that is what we find in uh, Revelation chapter 7. Uh, when you look at chapter 7, you see really the culmination of this grand project through history. When we read there in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the land. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. This is the end of history. You know, the the, the end of history isn't going to be zombies, okay? (laughs) The end of history isn't going to be aliens coming invading the world. The end of history is already determined by the master of history. It will come to this moment. And and there's a sense in which here you see the, the ultimate expression of what you find throughout the Bible, and that is the temple, the place to meet God. Let me just open that up a little bit. Um... Remember when Moses brought people of uh, the Hebrews out of Egypt? He brings them to Mount Sinai. Why does he bring them to Mount Sinai? So they can come face to face with God. 
And then if they're out in Sinai, they, they, they hear the voice of God, and they, they say to Moses, whoa, this is too much for us, you know. Well, how about, Moses, would you go up there and talk to God and come down and tell us a bit quieter, it's a bit frightening? Well, God accommodates that to a degree, and he creates what's called a tabernacle, a tent where they could meet God. I know, and inside that tent, there was this sort of uh, cube in the very center of it, the Holy of Holies, where God would dwell to meet with his people. And then later on, they would stop having a tabernacle, and God would have them build a temple. And the temple, God would build and have them build in exactly the same form. And, and it would be a place where people could come, and they could meet God. And that very inside would be a cuboid, where there would be the dwelling place of God with his people. Dave told us last year, we were going through the book of Ephesians, Paul picks that up and he says, well, actually, when we talk about the temple, actually what we're talking about is the people of God. And that in many ways that we who put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess, we become living stones in this massive temple that God is building. And so every person that comes into a knowledge of God and comes to Jesus, they're added into that temple and that temple is built larger and larger and larger Until you get to Revelation chapter 7, where you see this vast crowd. And ultimately, they'll be part of that beautiful garden city. By the way, I don't know if you ever read Revelation 21, and you come across where that city is a cube. Remember that? Width, height, breadth, exactly the same. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, why in the world is the New Jerusalem a cube? The answer is because it's the Holy of Holies. Just like the the tabernacle is cuboid where you met God, just like in the temple is cuboid where you met God in the Holy of Holies, that the city of God will be the place where God's people will be face-to-face with God for eternity. I will build my church. Now, if that's the end of everything... If that's the destination of all things, what does that mean for us? How how do we take that on board? One of the things I I think that it's uh, taught me over the years, and I just shared this with you, it's uh, it's something I got when I was uh, going some time ago through the book of Joshua, and I was teaching it, and I I came across that passage in chapter 5 of Joshua, verse 14. It's a really interesting passage. There's Joshua who knows he's been commissioned by God to do something. Uh, It's been passed over him. He has the authority to lead the people of God into the promised land and to conquer the enemies. So Joshua knows what God's called him to do. And as he goes in there in faithfulness, he's surveying the city of Jericho saying, okay, well, how am I going to defeat this? What's it going to require? And he's, as he's surveying it, he's walking around, he finds it this massive, beautiful, glorious, frightening warrior standing before him. And he goes up to him and he, and he says to the man, he says, are you with us or with our enemies? I, I can understand that. He's saying, look, you know, I'm here in the purpose and the will of God. God's called me to come into this. God's called me to conquer this nation. God's called me to conquer this city. I know what God has called me to do. I'm getting on with that. Are you with me or with my enemies? Do you remember the answer of God? It's up there behind me, so you do remember now. 
His first word is no. Wow, think about that a minute. No. No, I'm not with you. I'm the commander of the army of God. Now I have come. Think about that a minute. Joshua's commissioned, called, faithfully doing what he's been given. He comes and he meets. I think it's, this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, the captain of the armies of the Lord. And when he says, are you with me? He says, no. That's one of those verses as a pastor that's haunted me for the whole of my ministry. Because what I understand that means to a degree is simply this. As a plotter and a planner, which is I am, I love to plot and plan. Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? How do I get there? I love to do that. As a plotter and a planner, what this says to me is that church is not about me. It's about him. The question is not, is God on my side, but am I on God's side? The question is not, God, are you here doing and involved in what I'm doing? But the question is, am I involved in doing what you are doing? In other words, fundamentally, my life is to be lived to his pleasure. And friends, I just want to say this, and and I say this more to myself than anyone else, but, but... I just want to say this. We have to be so incredibly careful not to confuse our comfort, our kingdoms, our ministries, our churches, our programs, the use of our gifts and our pride with God's kingdom. That's not God's kingdom. We're called to serve Him. And, you know... It's wonderful what God has done over the years here in Highfield, but I want to say this. Highfield will come and go. It's not about Highfields. It's about his purposes and the pleasure I have in serving him with the few days that I've been given in this life while I am alive. The ultimacy of God's purpose But I want you to notice as well that Jesus here is declaring his own focus, his single-minded focus. I will build my church. This is the determination of the Lord Jesus Christ himself as the Son of God, who would be the triumphant Savior uh, there on the cross of Calvary and as he would rise in the resurrection. And as as, uh, Ricky was telling us this morning, uh, Jesus would say there in Matthew chapter 28, as a result of that great triumphant victory, he would say to his people, go. Go and make disciples. Just take it, therefore, let me tell you. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and, the Son, and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end. So, so here is Jesus commanding his people to go. But as he does that, he also ensures, assures them of his authority and power, the unstoppable authority and power to bring about all that it determines will be with them as well as his presence. And then in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, he would also say this earlier. He would say, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached 
in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now note that, what Jesus says. What is the determining factor of the end of history in this world? It is the completion of the gospel being preached to all nations and Jesus gathering in all his people. Then the end will come. That is the determining factor of history. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves, of course, is how? How will Jesus bring this about then? How will Jesus build his kingdom? And and I think, again, in, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I think we get something of the answer. When Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, there's a bit of play on words on there that we can miss. But in the Greek, it goes something like this. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, which means a little stone. And you are Petros, a little stone. And on this rock, Petra, a massive rock, I will build my church. Now, I don't think that he's saying, Peter, you're what I'm going to build my church on. Though, interestingly enough, Peter is the one who would first bring the gospel to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, book of Acts. But nevertheless, I don't think it's Peter he's referring to. But rather, I think what Jesus is referring to at that point is what Peter has just confessed a bit earlier in verse 15. Or verse 16. And Peter answered when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Messiah. You are the one that God has promised to send into this world to bring salvation to those who bow the knee and turn to you and judgment upon all who oppose you. We, we sang that earlier. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess it. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Peter has said, I recognize that you are the Messiah. And it's upon that recognition, Jesus is saying, I will build my church. As men and women down through history, across the nations, as they come to that same point that Peter comes to, and declaring that Jesus is the Lord, who had died upon the cross for their sins, who rose from the grave to defeat death, and to justify them through faith, through grace alone, in the Lord Jesus alone, and according to the Scriptures alone, that as they would confess that, Jesus would build his church. Now, simply put is, Jesus will build his church through the proclaiming of the gospel. Through the proclamation of the gospel. And it's interesting, if you go back and read church history, you will time and again find that when the people of God drift and when the church drifts, what changes it is when people get back to proclaiming the word of God. As they proclaim the gospel, God will build his church. But I want to suggest there's a little bit more to it than just that. It, I'm not turning around the Bible a lot, so please forbear with me a little bit and at least turn to one passage. Will you turn to Romans chapter 10? Because when we think about that, about proclaiming the proclamation and going out, we have to ask ourselves, has, has God given us any more understanding? And I think the Apostle Paul has given us some understanding. When he says this in verse chapter, Romans chapter 10, verse 14, he says, How then... 
Can they call on the one they have not believed in? How, how is it that all those who have not come to faith in Christ, how are they ever going to call on God? Call upon those who have not believed in. And, and how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? They haven't even heard. They don't even know what you're talking about. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? It is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, I want you to just think about that a minute. Paul is saying that the proclamation of the gospel is it goes out and builds God's church. It's brought about as people do two things. First of all, they go to those who have not heard. They embed themselves. And then they tell them the gospel in a language they can understand. So they embed and then tell the gospel in their world. Now, if I had Ricky up here and... Sarah up here, they would tell you the fundamental thing every missionary knows is this simple fact. Whenever you go to somewhere to share the gospel, there are two things you must do. Number one, learn the language. Number two, learn the culture. You cannot communicate the gospel unless you embed yourself in their language, where they are at, and you embed yourself in their world so that you can speak to them and communicate in the world they understand. And I want to suggest to you that's equally true when you're planning a church. We have to embed ourselves where people live. And we have to enter into their world so that we can communicate in a language they understand. You know, it's interesting, uh, church studies, and I've always find it amazing that, that some people actually go and study this. Church studies show that church plants, new church plants, churches that are under like 10 years, are far more effective at reaching their communities because they're far more willing to be innovative and to get involved in their communities because they have to or otherwise they'll close. And so in many studies, they would say something like in a new church plant that's growing, you will discover usually somewhere around 80% of those within the church have been converted who had never heard the gospel before. It's interesting, the study showed that in a more established church, and that's 15 years plus, actually, they're not that good because they become more settled, they, become, they have their structures, they have their ways of doing things, and they, they have an important role to play because usually they are those who are able to help other churches, to train, to teach, to support them. But by and large, and this is just study, so I, I take it for those studies, they would say that 60 to 70% of those within larger established churches actually are from church transfer, not from church, not from gospel growth. That's not always true. I know that. But, but I think there's a bit of truth in it because I think it goes back to what Paul's saying there in Romans 10 that actually we need to embed, be innovative in their world and communicate in their world. That's the most effective way that God has used in many places to draw people to himself. But 
we equally, I think, we have to be very honest. You know, if you do that, church planting carries a massive cost. Let me just be very honest with that. Let me say that again. Church planting carries a massive cost. Now, I think Jesus, again, is explaining something of that as we look here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, interesting here, Jesus indicates that whenever we push out in gospel growth, or if I were to put that in terms of uh, planting and extending the church and, and planting a church, Jesus here is acknowledging that the moment you do that, you will face the satanic union of hell of a self-oriented, indulgent society and God-denying worldviews, the gates of hell. By the way, it's interesting here that it's uh, the gates of hell, which is a defensive battlement. So in other words, he's saying that that to advance the gospel is actually to attack the the defensive battlement of the gates of hell. And that you actually say, we will tackle this in our generation, with all its interesting, crazy ideas of how life works and the world works, we're going to, oh, we're going to come and we're going to take that on board and we're going to bring the gospel to that situation. My understanding, and you can correct me afterwards, but I, I, my belief is that every generation has to count the cost. We can glory and rejoice in the victories of the past generations. Hallelujah for all the revivals here in Wells. But we can never rest on them. We have to take on the gates of hell in our day. Not our forefathers, the past generation, not their job, they had to do it in theirs. Ours is to do it in our day, to advance the gospel. Some years ago, I met a, a young man. I was having dinner with him and uh, his wife and ch- children in Yangon in Myanmar. And he was telling me about his own story of why he was uh, down there planning a church in Yangon, just across the river from where we were having our meal. He said, I come from the Chin State. They call it state. It's like a district. That's what they do in Myanmar. And the Chin State, he said, they are 88% Christian. Now, I was up in that area in visits in Myanmar. I would say uh, it may be a broad definition of Christian. I think there's a bit of legalism there and all that. But, but nevertheless, they recognize about 88%. I mean, monolithically Christian. And he said that, that when he got a call to come down to Yangon, he said that the automatic reaction of his father and his mother is, you can't go there. How dare you take your wife and children there? They'll kill you. All the church leaders lined up and said, no. No, we've got a ministry here. We see a place for you. We need you here with us. But he and his wife felt such a, a burden on them, themselves that they, they, they went down to Yangon and they planted a church. Now, let me explain Yangon. Yangon is considered the birthplace of Buddhism. It would claim to be 99% Buddhist. 
It's got a huge gaudy-looking temple in the middle that they claim is the first uh, temple to Buddha, uh, and they, they, they love it and they worship it all the time. And he said that when they bought the house on the other side, he said, we bought them in this district, and he said, when we bought it, the neighbors stoned us, literally. And we're talking the 90s. When that didn't push us out, he said they didn't call the authorities, and the authorities came and they put all kinds of restrictions on it. They said, you've got to be quiet here. The people you get here, you can't, uh, you've got to be very, very quiet. You mustn't interfere here. And one of the things the Buddhists do, I discovered when I was in Myanmar, is that when Christians, wherever they would come and seek to plant something, they're really clever. They would completely surround it with Buddhist temples. They have thousands, hundreds of thousands of temples. And they would landlock any Christian work with temples that you had to cross over to get to them. But there was a loophole in the regulations. And then the loophole was they didn't say you couldn't start a nursery preschool. So the Christians, they went in there, they thought, we're going to start nurseries and play schools, and then we'll move that into elementary schools. And lo and behold, they did that. And the reality is, in Myanmar, they're the best school to send your children to. So guess who all the Buddhists sent their children to? They sat there. They took their children, they had events, they shared with them the gospel. And when I was there anyway, and that was, I think it was about seven years ago, there were 60 people, of which I think 50 of them were Buddhists who had been converted by the gospel. It's costly to build God's people, or to build the church. But not only that, I think we also find there the security of the church by Jesus. And I think that's actually, this is a declaration of history. I will build my church. Jesus is declaring that through his death, his burial, his resurrection, glorification, and ascension into heaven, to where we find in Revelation chapter 5, that the, the lamb who was slain takes the scroll from God the Father, and as he does, he's enabled to break the seals and to open it, which means to exercise the authority of God to fulfill what God has determined in history. That if Jesus does that, he is also declaring that he has secured absolutely the security of his people. He will build his church. The juggernaut of grace will never stop until Revelation chapter 7. (laughs) Nothing can stop it. Now, I want you to think about that. Everything else changes, doesn't it? I remember when I was a, a, a young teenager, I was so thrilled and excited when my dad decided to put in our car an 8-track player. Anybody remember an 8-track player? Who had them? No, anybody? <laughs> Man, that was exciting, the latest technology. Then we had tapes. And, okay, we got a tape player, then CDs. Okay, you got a CD. And now iPhones. And who knows, maybe we'll have AI with some kind of cybernetic something in our head. Everything changes. As a 16-year-old young man growing up in America, I lived in terror the day I would turn 18 and get drafted into the army to go to the Vietnam War. My son now goes there on holiday. The Soviet Union with the terror when I was growing up, were they going to launch the missiles? Now they're no more. 
The great British empire ruled from sea to sea, gone. And I think America's empire will soon be gone as well. Everything changes. But Jesus' purpose will never change. I will build my church. In 1885, John Pugh, a railroad worker who became an evangelist, part of the forward movement, was reading the Daily Mail, and he read this in the Daily Mail, which said that Glamorgan was the black spot of the whole British Empire. Sorry for that. I didn't write it, okay? The black spot, primarily because of all the seamen that were coming into the Cardiff and Newport in this area. It was considered to be one of the worst places in the whole British Empire. John Pugh took that to heart and started going out to the seamen and started seamen's missions and started going and sharing the gospel. And that led him eventually to go to Newport with the gospel. And he began sharing it on the street, and they had others who began to be converted. And then in 1897, he encouraged a group to buy a field with a hall that would seat 800 on the Malpas Road, in the middle of nowhere, actually. It was a field, the building and the field around it, and they bought it for the gospel. Everyone laughed. And all the wise Christian leaders scorned and condemned him for it. That church, if you know anything about it, is still around today over in Malpas Road. That church was filled to the brim after the 1904-1905 revivals. And has been a stalwart for the gospel, reaching out for the gospel Was it costly? Yeah. But it costed nothing compared to what God has done with it. And you know, when you think about that and our brothers and sisters over there and what we've looked at, you know, really you come to the end of this and you say there's really only one question to ask. Will we take on the gates of hell in our day? Will we dare to believe that Jesus will build his church? Let's pray. Most gracious, merciful, glorious Lord, who has determined the end of all things, and who through the exercise of your authority, purpose, and will, will bring everything to that moment and conclusion. We thank you for the joy, each and every one of us here tonight, whose hearts have been opened to the gospel, who have learned what Peter confessed, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. We pray for anyone here tonight who doesn't know that. May you draw them in to yourself. It is our pleasure and joy to be your children. It is our privilege to share and live for your purpose in our day. Grant us grace simply 
to do what you call us to do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.